Uh, Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to 25 as we consider together the Messiah's first advent. The Messiah's first advent. Well many of you will at some point in your education or, or maybe even in your career you will have written a thesis, a purpose statement and then you'll have had to do research to explore your thesis and hopefully to back it up and hopefully find plenty of evidence to support it. A thesis, of course, is a a statement declaring that you believe something to be true and that you're now going to set out to prove that something is true. And so whether it's in the realm of the arts or mathematics or science, all kinds of people at all kinds of times have written a thesis and they have sought to prove through the research they've gone on to do that that thesis is a true statement. Well, in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, which I've already mentioned this morning, but Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 is really Matthew's thesis. It's his purpose statement in writing. He is setting out to prove to us by everything that he's said, all the information that he's gathered together, and all the evidence that he presents to us, that Jesus of Nazareth, as he came to be known during his time on the earth, Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the one long promised to God's people in the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and the fulfillment of God's promises to David. And it's important to appreciate as we make our way through, particularly these opening two chapters of Matthew, which in many ways are so familiar to us and yet perhaps in other ways are not as familiar as they should be. Um, It's important as we make our way through these chapters to appreciate why this material is here. The genealogy and the account of Jesus' birth and the account of the Magi who came uh, to see the infant Jesus and the account of his having to flee to Egypt, which is the story that often gets overlooked in the midst of these birth narrative stories. Why has Matthew included all of these things? He has 31 verses of text that we don't have anywhere else in the Bible. And we want to ask, why is it that Matthew has put them here? He hasn't just provided a string of great little stories for the Christmas season. As I was reading, there's a very funny, if not at times irreverent, book called A Christmas Cornucopia, which kind of explodes a lot of the myths around the origins of Christmas in a very, at times very funny and playful way. But one of the things that uh, the writer of Christmas Cornucopia says, for hundreds and hundreds of years, there was no such thing as Christmas. And then Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, there was still no such thing as Christmas. It was something that was, it came along a lot, lot later uh, with, with all kinds of different traditions and, and man-made uh, significance read into it. But nonetheless, why is it then, if Matthew didn't intend to provide us with Christmas stories, why did he include each of these passages that we have at the beginning of his gospel? He's included them, friends, as part of the proof to prove his statement that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's what we need to keep in mind as we make our way through them, that Matthew is concerned to to prove that statement to us at every turn of his gospel. And so we want to think today about the first or sorry, the second of these uh, little sections that Matthew has for us setting out to, to make that case. We thought about the genealogy last week. Today we think about his account of the first advent, the first coming 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do so, I want to draw your attention to several things, to four things. First of all, we're going to think about Joseph, the adoptive parent of the Messiah. And then we'll think about the miraculous conception, which was the coming of the Messiah. And then we'll think about the two names given to the Messiah, Jesus and Emmanuel. And then finally, we'll think about the response required to the Messiah. So let's think first of all today about Joseph, the adoptive parent of the Messiah. Uh, we're reminded, we've, we've already seen in uh, Matthew's gospel that Joseph is a descendant of David. We're told that back in Matthew chapter 1 verse 16. As the genealogy of Jesus comes to an end, we have the names there. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born. And we note immediately the change at the end of the genealogy. The rest of the genealogy has said, so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, all the way down through the generations. And then we come to Joseph, and he's not described as the father of Jesus, but rather as the husband of Mary. And And Matthew, of course, is careful to never describe Joseph as the father of Jesus. He wasn't, of course, the biological father of Jesus. He was the adoptive father of Jesus. And it's incredible, of course, as familiar as we are, we need to try and leave all of our familiarity to the side. It's incredible the way the story is, is described for us here. It's, it's incredible the way that God enters into the life of this completely ordinary man, Joseph, and upends his life. The coming of the Messiah disrupts the life of Joseph. And even in that, we, we get a little foretaste of what is to come in Matthew's gospel because for, for the Lord Jesus, for the Messiah to come into the lives of any of us, as Matthew's gospel goes on to prove, is to bring disruption. The Messiah comes and he turns our lives upside down, friends. He, he, he changes everything about our lives. He changes the priorities of our lives. He changes the plans of our lives. And we see that clearly here before the Messiah is even born. He is disrupting and he is changing the life of this man, Joseph. Look at verse 18. Uh, It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. So they were betrothed. Um, I explained betrothal a few weeks ago as we were making our way through Revelation. But just again to... Briefly recap it in case you weren't here. Uh, Betrothal in that time and place was a much more solemn and binding uh, situation than our modern custom of engagement. Uh, Engagement in our culture, uh, you can can still, if you have to, the engagement can be broken off. There's there's still that opportunity to decide that it's it's not the the right thing if, if that's the case. And there won't be any legal penalty if an engagement comes to a close. But that wasn't the case for a betrothed couple in Joseph's culture, in the Jewish culture. The parents would arrange for the marriage. Usually uh, the parents of the groom would choose a bride for their son. And so there would be a sort of a a prenuptial agreement, to put it in modern language, would be drawn up. Eventually at some point there was a legal ceremony. Now they, they weren't made husband and wife, but at that legal ceremony... The families committed to what they would provide. Contracts were drawn up. And from that point on, the betrothal could only be ended by the legal process of divorce. And of course, it would be a very 
shameful and scandalous thing for a betrothal to be broken off by means of divorce. And Joseph and Mary, of course, here are, in that, are at that stage. They're betrothed. They haven't yet come together, we're told, as husband and wife. Although uh, even uh, betrothal was so serious that sometimes people would start to refer to you as husband and wife. Even though you didn't live together yet and you hadn't consummated the marriage yet. And so Joseph and Mary are in a very serious legal commitment. And then look what Joseph discovers. He discovers in verse 18 that Mary is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph here is on the horns of a dilemma. Where it says there that he's a just man, that that really means that he is a law-abiding man. And so it seems from the way the account is given to us that Joseph at this point wasn't aware that, Mary was, that Mary's pregnancy was the result of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. We don't know if she had tried to tell him and he simply didn't believe her. But at this point, Joseph believes that according to the law, he has to break off this engagement or this betrothal. Because according to Jewish law, if someone had committed adultery... That was grounds not only to end the betrothal, but even for someone to be offered up to the Jewish authorities. And if you were going by the strict letter of Jewish law, for them to be stoned to death. And even if Mary wasn't going to be stoned to death, if Joseph made the authorities aware of the situation, she would be, her her life would be over. If not physically, then socially. She would be cast out from Jewish society. She would be seen as a shameful woman who had committed one of the the, the taboo, the unspeakable sins of that time and that culture of engaging in in sexual uh, intimacy before marriage. Joseph has to assume that that's the way this pregnancy has come about. How else could it possibly be? And so according to the letter of the law, because he's a just man, he knows what he has to do. And yet notice that he also has a concern for Mary. He he says that he wants to divorce her quietly. He doesn't want her to be left open to shame and to being ostracized and rejected by her culture. Joseph was likely extremely hurt and confused and in a complete dilemma in this situation. He doesn't know what to think or what to do. And yet he still has concern for God's law and he still has also concern for Mary. And that shows to us the character of the man. But nonetheless, friends, the coming of the Messiah disrupts and turns upside down the life of his prospective adoptive father, Joseph. And that's what the Messiah does In the lives of all of us. If you come to know and realise who Jesus Christ is. There is the potential for your whole life to be turned upside down. And you could very well well find yourself in a dilemma. If you come to realise the claims that Jesus Christ is making upon you. And you come to realise what it is that he demands from you. That Jesus says if anyone would come after me let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. 
Jesus comes, friends, and tells us to count the cost of following him. The angel here had to tell Joseph not to fear. There was much for Joseph to fear. And there may well be much for you to fear if you come to the point of realising I need to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You might well realise this might mean an end to certain friendships or relationships that I have in my life. This might mean at the very least that even if I don't intend for a relationship with someone or with certain people to end, that almost inevitably they're going to end up wanting to have nothing to do with me because my life and my beliefs and, uh, and the way that I want to live, they just think is going to be a joke. To follow Jesus means that we put our time and our finances and our gifts and everything at his disposal, that there is no area of our lives over which he does not get to say, that belongs to me. And Joseph found that out in a very dramatic and uh, clear way at this stage of his life. The Messiah comes, friends, and he comes and turns our lives upside down. He comes and he disrupts our lives. Some of you will have read uh, Rosaria Butterfield's uh, well-known book now, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Uh, the story of how this woman went from being uh, in the, the LGBT lifestyle herself and a spokeswoman for it, passionately believing in all the, the, the worldview that goes along with the radical extremist uh, LGBT agenda. She went from that to being converted and, and now today is, is a pastor's wife. And you think, well, that's great. Isn't that fantastic that she was saved out of that life that was so contrary to everything the Bible has to say? And now she's, she's right in the heart of, of ministry life. That's fantastic. But one of the things she emphasizes in her book was how painful and how demanding and how disruptive it was for her. A, a professor in I think was a, a, a professor who believed in feminism and who believed in all the radical LGBT propaganda. I think she uses the word at some point that her life was a train wreck as a result of realizing that she needed to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Messiah comes into our lives, friends, and he disrupts and he turns things upside down. Sinclair Ferguson commenting on the dilemma that Joseph found himself in says, the man God uses, he often first bruises. The man or the woman that God uses, he often first bruises. It's going to cost us to follow the Messiah. It's going to cost us to be faithful to him and to put him first in our lives. Have you done that? Are you counting the cost today? Are there areas of our lives that we're holding back from him? And from his authority and from his plans in our lives. So first of all, Joseph, the prospective adoptive father of the Messiah. But then secondly, in this passage, we think about the coming of the Messiah. And the coming of the Messiah is by miraculous conception. Miraculous conception. Joseph has this dilemma to deal with. Mary is pregnant. They're not yet married. He can only assume or perhaps at first didn't believe that it could be anything other than that she has been unfaithful to him with all the heartache and confusion that that would have brought to him. But yet look how God intervenes. Look at verse 20. As he considered these things, and notice by the way that he does consider them, some of us rush in at times 
We can be guilty of panic or overreaction. Uh, but Joseph here, he takes time to consider things. And he says, and it says, as he did so, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Joseph had a lot of fears, understandably so. But the angel says to him, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's from the Holy Spirit. Again, friends, Matthew is wanting to emphasize to us all through his whole gospel and certainly in these early chapters that Jesus of Nazareth and the claims that are made about him are true and trustworthy. They are not the imaginings of his followers. And one of the ways Matthew does that here, certainly in the very first few chapters, is the emphasis on supernatural communication, divine intervention from God in the lives of ordinary people. Uh, six times in, Ma- in the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, we see this word dream appearing. Four times in these opening two chapters, Joseph is led by God. He, his actions are commanded by God via dreams. And in a sense, Matthew, he, he concentrates the mention of dreams and of divine communication in these early chapters to emphasize to us God's intervention in history. That this was not an ordinary state of events. That Jesus of Nazareth was not an ordinary man. This was God's sovereign initiative. This was God guiding the process of the Messiah coming into the world. Sometimes Christians will say, well, why doesn't God guide me like that today? You know, that would be so handy. Do you know, I have this job that I'm wondering whether I should go for. I have this house I'm wondering whether I should buy. I have this relationship that I'm wondering about whether to sue. Would it not be so handy if God would just tell me in a dream whether I'm supposed to do it or not? Why doesn't God do that today? It happened back then. Why doesn't he do it today? Well, for one thing, friends, God does still speak to us today, of course, through his word, his complete, perfect, inerrant word. It's not to be treated like just uh, you know, a, a magic eight ball that you turn to it and you ask it the question that you have and you expect an immediate answer uh, about the job or the relationship or whatever it might be. But for another thing, quite frankly, the stakes are not as high in your life as they were at this moment in history. Whether or not you buy the house, I'm afraid, no offence, it's nowhere near as important as whether Joseph was going to accept Mary as his wife and raise Jesus the Messiah Uh, as his adoptive son. This was a unique moment in human history. And as you read through the Bible, you you notice that God speaking in these miraculous ways, these uh, less than ordinary ways, they tend to come at at the turning points, the most important moments of human history. Matthew here, by his mention of dreams and his description of how God spoke to Joseph, he's emphasizing to us this is one of those turning points, if not the turning point in human history. Joseph could be left in no doubt that he was receiving the word of God via this angel. He could be left in no doubt that Mary had been faithful to him and that what had happened in her womb was the result of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And of course, we must be left And no doubt about that as well when it comes to what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's 
not that we have to fully understand the miraculous conception. We never will understand it. Indeed, we do well to recognize that there is mystery here beyond our comprehension. But this is what you must know and believe about Jesus, friends, that he was born of a woman, but he was conceived by the Spirit. Westminster Confession of Faith states it this way in chapter 8 and paragraph 2. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition or confusion. And that is what makes Jesus the perfect mediator as the confession goes on to say he is fully God he is fully man two natures in one person friends the Nicene Creed states it this way much more uh, succinctly and clearly Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary and that's what makes Jesus of course the perfect mediator between God and man And it's what makes Christianity distinct and unique from every other religion or faith-based life in the world. Everyone else says to us, you have a mountain of some sort to climb to get to God. That mountain might be physical wellness or mental wellness in our culture today. That mountain might be a religious pilgrimage that a certain religion says you need to go on. That mountain might be penance. It might be intellectual enlightenment via Buddhism or Hinduism, or modern-day spiritualism. You have a mountain that you need to climb to get to God, or to, if not to God, then a higher state of spiritual awareness or consciousness. What makes the message of Christianity unique, what makes the message of the Son of David, the Messiah, unique, is that God has come down the mountain to us. The only mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus himself said, John 6.38, I have come down from heaven. I've come down from heaven. He said over and over again, this is why the Father has sent me. The Father has sent me. He is fully God and fully man, born of a virgin. And this is essential for our salvation. This is what makes Jesus utterly unique in the history of the world, that he is both born into the line of men and yet he is born without sin and that he is also God, that he is able to bridge that gap between heaven and earth. He's our perfect representative, the perfect mediator between God and man. J.C. Ryle says, let us not attempt to explain things which are above our feeble reason. Let us be content to believe with reverence and let us not speculate about matters which we cannot understand. Enough for us to know that with him who made the world, nothing is impossible. Do you believe today in this miraculous conception of the Messiah that he is the adoptive son of David? 
born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us who were under the curse of the law. So we've thought about the Messiah's uh, adoptive father, Joseph. We've thought about the Messiah's coming by miraculous conception. I want to think also now about the names given to the Messiah, the names of Jesus and Emmanuel. Those are the two names that are mentioned here. Uh, Joseph is instructed in verse 21, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Every year, uh, the most popular baby names in the United Kingdom, a list of the most popular names are released. And if there had been such a list in the days of Joseph and Mary, probably Joshua would have been very close to the top of the list. The Hebrew name Joshua, or in Aramaic, it's, it's equivalent by the time that Jesus was born, the Aramaic equivalent was Jesus. Jesus is the New Testament equivalent of the name Joshua. And it was a very popular name amongst the Jews in those days because it meant the Lord saves. That's what the name Joshua means, the Lord saves. And that's, of course, what the Jewish people wanted in those days. The Jewish people wanted to be saved. The question is, what did they want to be saved from? Well, they wanted to be saved from Roman occupation. They wanted to have their freedom back. For hundreds of years, by the time that Jesus was born into the world, the Jews had not been entirely free. They had had pagan nations ruling over them. Pontius Pilate, who of course we know well from the end of the Gospels, the man who in the end was the one to hand Jesus over to crucifixion. Pontius Pilate was an absolute pain in the neck for the Jewish people. He did all kinds of things to wind up the Jews and frustrate the Jews. One of the things that he did was he, uh, he made sure that the coins that were in use uh, in Jewish culture at that time, they had a little pagan symbol on them. Uh, up until then, most of the, the rulers of Judea, they didn't really care what was on the coins. They put something inoffensive on them. Pilate said, what would really annoy the Jews? I know, I'll put the, the symbol of a pagan god on the coins. He would just annoy the Jews no end. And the Jews were fed up with this. They wanted to be free of Roman occupation. They wanted, as one preacher I heard uh, described it, coined the phrase, they wanted a Jude exit. They wanted to get out from under the Roman Empire. And so the name Joshua was very popular because it means the Lord saves. And you could read into the name whatever you wanted. The Lord saves from the Romans. Uh, the Lord saves from the pagan overlords. The Lord saves from the the dirty Gentiles round about us that we don't want to live with anymore. The Lord saves by sending a powerful, mighty Messiah to conquer Jerusalem and bring in an army and bring back a glorious kingdom like in the days of David. The Lord saves. You can read into it whatever you want. But the angel says here to Joseph, you're to call him Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, Because he will save the people from their sins. From their sins. Not just from some annoying national empire that has them under their boot. Not just from Gentiles that they'd rather not have to live with at all. But from their sins. And perhaps that was something the Jews had lost sight of in Jesus' day. That they themselves were sinners. They themselves had to be redeemed. 
It wasn't just they needed to be rid of all the pagans round about them, but they themselves had to be forgiven for their sin. Then the other name that he's given is the name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, and again we're told what that name means here at the end of verse 23. It means God with us. God with us. And this, friends, as I was trying to emphasize earlier when we read from Isaiah, this hints uh, at the fact that this son of David, this Messiah, is not just coming for something like national liberation. He is, he is coming as the fulfillment of all God's covenant promises throughout the Old Testament. God with us is essentially the, the overarching covenant promise that God made to the Israelites all through their history. We've been thinking about this as we come to the end of Revelation. What do we find in Revelation 21 verse 3? As we read about the new Jerusalem, it says, God himself will be with them as their God. That is the destiny of all believers, friends, that we will dwell in the new heavens and the new earth and we will be with God. We will see the face of Jesus Christ. And that ultimately is the promise that weaves its way through the whole of Scripture. It's what God promised to to Abraham. Walk before me. Be with me. Enjoy my presence. And then inherit a land for you and your people forever. It's what God said to the Israelites in the heart of his law. Leviticus 26, 12. I will be your God. You will be my people. That language of being together forever. And so Jesus tells us what he has come to do. Emmanuel tells us who he is. He is God with us. The covenant God who keeps his promises that there will be a land and there will be a people and there will be a blessing for those who trust in him. What is it that you want or think that you need from Jesus today? The Jews in Mary and Joseph's day thought they needed all kinds of things. And when they realised, as we'll see, and as, as you likely know from your own knowledge of Matthew's gospel and from the other gospels, when they came to realise what it was that Jesus was really claiming and what it was he had come to do, many of them turned their backs and didn't want to follow him anymore. If he wasn't going to provide them with political liberation, if he wasn't going to provide them with respect and prestige on the world stage, if he wasn't going to provide them with wealth and health and healing, They turned their backs upon him. What is it that you want from Jesus? Some people come to him, uh, would profess faith in the assumption that material prosperity will follow. There's all kinds of false gospels doing doing the rounds about that today. Some people would say, well, if I trust in Jesus, presumably all the other good things that I want will come along too. Family, solve all the problems I have with that annoying colleague solve the health problems I have. There was a time in our culture when people would have professed faith in Christ and become members of the church because that was the respectable thing to do. And you got a bit of a pat on the back from uh, your friends and neighbours as long as you were part of the church. Those days are largely over and coming to an end in Northern Ireland. Are you coming to Jesus because you'll think he'll do something for you? That you think he'll... He'll give you the respect or the power or the success that you want. Here's what Jesus will do for you. He will save you from your sins. Because you are a sinner in need of his mercy and grace.
And he's also Emmanuel. He wants a relationship with you. The Jews, they just wanted some impersonal hero figure to come and solve all their problems. They didn't really need to know anything more about him than that. But here Joseph is told that the one who will come will be Emmanuel. God with us. Fully God, fully man. Who comes to restore that relationship that we had with God back in Eden. Again, we've thought about this in Revelation recently. That Adam and Eve, they they got to walk through paradise. They were with God. And they lost that relationship through their sin. Jesus has come so that relationship can be restored. How do you respond to this Messiah who is both Jesus and Emmanuel? That takes us to the last thing, just to say in closing uh, today. Uh, And that is the right response required to the Messiah. The right response required to the Messiah. We see the response of Joseph in verses 24 and 25. Uh, Verse 24 says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Notice the language very intentionally emphasizes he did exactly what what he was commanded. The first thing the angel said to him in verse 20, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. What's the first thing he does when he wakes up? Verse 24, he took his wife. He does what he was told to do. Second thing he was told to do uh, in verse 21, call his name Jesus. And again, verse 25, he called his name Jesus. Joseph obeyed fully and immediately. He did exactly what he was called to do. The Messiah came in and disrupted Joseph's life before Joseph had even looked him in the face. But Joseph responded in wholehearted obedience. Ryle says that he is a beautiful example of godly wisdom and tender consideration for others. And we might add to that as well, a great example of wholehearted obedience. He trusted and obeyed despite all the fears that he had. Despite all the unknowns of what this was going to mean for him and Mary to raise the Son of God. Boys and girls, as we were thinking yesterday at Arrows, Joseph here takes up his shield of faith. Remember we thought about the the Roman soldiers holding up their shields so they could walk forward even without being able to see what was up ahead. That's what Joseph does here. He takes up his shield of faith. He doesn't have all the answers for what's going to happen next. But he believes And he obeys. And his obedience was costly. The Gospels hinted the fact that for the rest of her life, people made comments about Mary and about her purity. People made comments even to Jesus and essentially used the words that you would hear people using today to call him an illegitimate son. Joseph had to count the cost. And in doing so, friends, in in obeying wholeheartedly in this way the commands of God he points us forward to what his son would one day do the son his adopted son the son of David the son of Abraham the Lord Jesus Christ he obeyed wholeheartedly and completely what his father called him to do he took himself to the cross he offered himself up in our place for our sins the Lord Jesus Christ who came to save his people from our sins. If you're his follower today, are you unashamedly, unreservedly obeying him? 
Is there any area of your life where you need to begin obeying him? Or where you need to repent of not obeying him? And if you're not a Christian today, would you not come to realise and believe who Jesus is? He is the only saviour of sins. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the greatest gift that God could ever send into this world. He is the one in whom you need to trust and believe. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Amen.